Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Faithfully Engaged. I have a, a guest here that I met on the wide world of Twitter. Um, we get all sorts of uh, good interactions, and also I'm sure we'll get into some some bad interactions. But thankfully, um, this has been a, a fun person to, to get to know a little bit on Twitter. So, Robin, let me shoot it to you a little bit, and why don't you tell the, the audience a little bit about yourself? Well, thank you so much for having me, Johnny. I appreciate it. Yeah, we met on Twitter. My name is Robin Atkins. I'm a licensed mental health counselor in Indiana, and I specialize in reproductive mental health. So I see people with any type of traumatic event related to reproduction, which could be everything from infertility to pregnancy loss and everything in between. Great. And let, let me just start right there. Um, I've had a few other counselors on the show before, and this is a question I like to ask offline too, but what what's your why? What what got you into counseling in the first place? Counseling itself, not my specialty, but counseling, I knew at a very young age. I was reading mm -hmm. Freud by age twelve, so it was just kind of <laughs> destined to be Typical and actually twelve year old stuff, right? <laughs> right, normal twelve year old stuff. Funny story, um, I have two siblings and we all have psychology degrees. So we joke that there must have been something wrong with our family and we all <laughs> wanted to figure it out. Um, we all went into different parts of psychology. So I'm the only therapist. Um, the other two are working in other areas of psychology. But yeah, it was just from a very young age, I wanted to understand the human brain and human behavior. And so that was just a natural direction that I went into. I wasn't sure. I originally wanted to be an FBI profiler. Mm -hmm. um, then I decided I did want a family. And that wasn't probably the safest or most conducive job to have children so while doing so, um, it kind of shifted on its own um, somewhere in my 20s. And then my specialty didn't start till my mid 30s. And it found me I didn't even know reproductive mm -hmm. mental health was an option. And it's still very rare to find a specialist in it. Yeah, that tell us a little bit about that. And I'll, I'll be honest that, um, you know, I, I can understand a, a little bit of uh, living through having two kiddos. And uh, my, my wife is, um, the time of recording this is eight months pregnant. So we're, we're about to have another kiddo out, out into the world. Um, so I see that side of her going through that. And um, obviously, there are issues both with uh, kind of ups and downs of pregnancy. And then I would imagine too, of ups and downs of infertility and all, all sorts of different issues. So but all that being said, as a professional myself, I don't know a whole lot about that. And that's part of what was so intriguing to me. It seems like such a wide chasm that mental health isn't touching very much. Um, exactly. So yeah, tell, tell me a little bit about your journey getting into that as a specialty, what you've learned. Yeah, just, just go more detail about that. Yeah, so it started somewhere around 2010. Uh, 2010, um, my pregnancy with my oldest living son was extremely high risk. I was very, very sick. I was on bed rest for about eight months. Um, and then um, my water broke early and we had to rush to emergency C-section. He was in the NICU for a month. And while I was in the NICU, 
I was asking for a therapist and the response was, well, we can bring you a social worker and no disrespect to social workers. They're amazing, but it's not what I was looking for as far as mm. the social workers at the, I know some social workers do therapy and that's fantastic, but the social workers at this particular hospital did more community resourcing and I didn't really need community resourcing. I needed somebody to help me process everything that had just happened to me and the new world that I was in because Nikki was just its own like biodome. Um, so they said, we can't do that. Um, you're going to have to leave to find a therapist outside of here. And I had a two-year-old at home and a preemie in the NICU. So I was spending 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. at home and 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. at the hospital. And I wasn't about to take time out to go do some self-care in the midst of that. So it didn't happen. And so at that point, I just knew I've got to do something about this. So for the next several years, I banged my head against several walls trying to get perinatal hospice and palliative care into our hospital systems here. And I live in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And here in Fort Wayne, we have, we've had two major hospital systems for a long time. We have a third now coming, um, but we've had two main ones. And so I met with everybody at every possible part of the hospital you can think of related to pregnancy, birth, postpartum, NICU, um, all the admin management. And the end line was always, we don't want to pay for it because it doesn't pay us back. So at that time, and still now as a therapist, it's hard to bill while in the hospital. Every time I go see a patient in the hospital, I either do it pro bono or I have to get approval way ahead of time from the insurance company for every single visit. So to do that is really cost prohibitive for a hospital mm -hmm. to hire a therapist to be on staff. And so it just wasn't going to happen that way. And uh, then I had a loss, a pregnancy loss, a miscarriage after that. And I decided I couldn't continue. At that time, I was working with the Department of Children's Services, doing home-based therapy with a lot of kiddos facing sexual abuse. And I started having kind of secondary PTSD um, symptoms related to that. Um, I have sexual abuse history in my childhood, and that really wasn't the issue. It was when I started having my own kids. It was mm. the stuff I was hearing started to show up in nightmares about my kids, and I just couldn't continue in that path. So. I decided to do private practice. And at that time, I didn't know reproductive mental health was on the horizon at all. I had not found anything anywhere else about it. I had studied uh, perinatal hospice and palliative care for years, um, mostly in Europe and Australia. I didn't go there. I wish I had. If anyone wants to fund that trip, I'm open to that. <laughs> but I just did a lot of reading on the research and the educational materials coming out of Europe and Australia. And so I opened up my private practice thinking I was only going to handle the issues that I had had personal experience with. And I had not experienced infertility other than several doctors had told me because of some issues I have, I would never have children. So I kind of, when I got married, thought I was never going to have biological children, but it didn't feel like since I was so young, when they told me that I was 15, 16, when they started telling me that it didn't at that age, I didn't care. And so it didn't feel like a big trauma to me or a little trauma. Actually, I just kind of assumed we would figure it out. And my husband knew I couldn't. So um, we just kind of figured we'd figure out the kid thing, whether it be fostering or whatever we were going to do. And so we didn't expect me to get pregnant. So I can't really say I had infertility. So I didn't think I was going to touch it. But as soon as people in my community here started hearing there was reproductive mental health specialist, not only was I getting a lot of referrals for pregnancy losses and 
um, traumatic birth, traumatic pregnancy, post-abortion, um, uh, women that are at risk for abortion choices. I was getting a lot of referrals for all of that, but then people started calling me about infertility. And really, mm. I have to credit my patients with that. I've been doing the specialty for eight years now, and they have been so generous with their vulnerability and their openness mm. and their growth. And you know, we, we all learn in grad school kind of the same techniques based on what theory of counseling we're doing, but they really showed me the knowledge I needed to have to meet them where they were without them having to give me a bunch of backstory and medical terminology. They taught me all of that, the first couple infertility clients. So I actually just finished writing a certification program in reproductive mental health, and it's mm -hmm. 25 credit hours, and it covers all the different gamut of everything except for addiction during pregnancy. That's would be its own 24 five hour course. And I haven't wanted to touch that yet. I just finished writing this one. So maybe that's coming in the future. But uh, there are, I know of personally about 20, 25 other people in the entire United States specializing in reproductive therapy. There are reproductive psychiatrists because there's a few universities that offer a doctorate in reproductive psychiatry. So that's really more of a medication management of postpartum mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, and psychosis. Um, and I do the therapy end of all those things, but I, I'm not a prescriber. So there are, there's a lot of money in pharmacology. So the schools are starting there. Um, and maybe it'll dwindle down into, there was a reproductive mental health textbook published in 2021. And it was the first one for colleges to have a course on it. And it's wonderful. It's fantastic. It's literally called the Reproductive Mental Health Textbook. Um, so that's for people still going through school. My certification course is for people that have already finished their degrees and are either getting licensed or already licensed that want a certification in it. I, I think it's great that there's at least uh, some direction there. Um, again, I, I just... I've re really have been fascinated when I kind of saw you on Twitter and everything and saw reproductive mental health. Like, what on earth? Um, and <laughs> it, it just makes so much sense when, when you explain it like that. It's like now I, I, I feel more so like, what have we, what have we been doing? Like we've been, mm -hmm. we've been missing a huge, huge chunk. And I loved what you said there too, of even just, on the hospital side of things. And uh, un unfortunately, and I won't get too much into this on my own personal side of things, um, hospitals, they, there is just a bottom line that, that kind of mm -hmm. goes, goes in there. That's not always about patient care. Um, I know in my, my wife's, um, kind of postpartum care, uh, particularly our first daughter, um, our, our first child that was born, she would have benefited so greatly from what you were desperately trying to find there of mm -hmm. just somebody coming in and just talking. Uh, you know, I, it's not like I didn't try to to talk to her, but you know, I, I'm a counselor, but I'm not my wife's counselor. Like right. she needs, she needed mm -hmm. an, um, you know, kind of an impartial party to come in there, being able to talk with her. Um, my daughter had jaundice we had to stay an extra day mm. it wasn't anything major she didn't even get any prescriptions but she would have really benefited from that um first time mom having a tough time nurses could see that what a great asset that would be to have for all of these mothers um if they need that well, in the when hospital you think about 
just as a society, we don't talk about death well or birth well. They're like the Mm -hmm. two topics that I see most often in my office, births and deaths. That's what I see most often. And we don't talk about either one well. And so it wasn't even until my husband and my third living child, I've had six pregnancies total. I have four living children um, that we kind of realized, you know, maybe before we add another one, we should try to figure out some ways this is going to impact our marriage and our relationship with our other kids and their relationships with each other and their relationships with the new baby. And like, that was never anything that was ever taught to either one of us Mm. of when you are going to grow your family, you need to figure out how that impacts the relationships. People think about the money and what they Mm -hmm. need to buy for the baby and childcare if they're working, but we don't really think about relationally how that's going to impact us. So even just that alone, I think most first time parents, I can honestly say when they handed me my daughter and they were like, you get to leave tomorrow. I was like, where's the manual? (laughs) I I don't understand why you're letting me leave with a living human being when I've never, ever done this before. So it's just kind of bizarre to me that in our uh, Western culture, it's just kind of like just another day and you go back to work in a week. Yeah, no, I I think that's your spot on and just, even anecdotally, um, and I'm, I'm sure most listeners that have more than one kid uh, can relate to this. I know in my life, when my son was born, yeah, it, it was a, it was exciting. It was nerve wracking to a degree, um, but by and large, we, we had done that. We, we'd been there, done that. Um, came home. It life did continue a little bit more normal because we had done that, um, but we were so much more comfortable on that second go round. that first go round, No, mm-hmm. every parent, I think is like, what on earth, what, what am I supposed to do here? And yeah, that is a disservice for our society to not talk about what is birth like, what are some of the, the issues that you might come into, but what are some of the great things you might come into? I know that's something that my wife has been trying to do with, uh, with other mothers and things. Um, now that, we're, we're on our, our third kid. So often the talk with mothers is, oh, well, just wait till they're two. Just wait until they don't sleep or this next thing. And it's always so negative. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen that with both in your life um, with just kind of people talking to you about being a mother, dealing with kids, and also with your clients, just an overall negative view towards parenthood and, and specifically motherhood? That's a really great question. Congratulations, by the way, on your pending third birth. Um, Yeah, I think most of my patients that come see me, they don't necessarily talk about motherhood in a negative way, but they have one of two reactions. They will say all the commercials we see, um, all the advertising we see very much paints motherhood as easy and blissful. So like every diaper ad in the world, everybody's smiling and everybody's happy. That's not what a <laughs> new mom looks like. We, we haven't showered in weeks. Like, come on. <laughs> so I, I think they're really irritated that they didn't know the reality of going into it, how hard it was going to be to go without sleep and not sure. Are you going to eat or shower? You have to choose one or the other, or, you know, all those things. And um, but overall, the actual conversation between them and their friends is tends to be negative. The, the, the complaining side, the wine mom complaining about the kids side yeah. of motherhood. Um, and it's interesting because I work with a lot of birth mothers or first mothers who've 
their children have been adopted out and they have told me that's a large part of why they felt they couldn't parent is kind of the talk about how children interrupt lifestyle or interrupt uh, career or goals. And so they didn't feel suited to mothering. And then it ends up being a huge trauma for them. So I think that's a disservice we're doing as well with either glamorizing it as everything's beautiful and Mm -hmm. everything's easy and light and fun, or as we talk about it with each other, only the hard parts of it rather than the beautiful parts of it. And I don't know about anybody else, but my experience with my children, there are definitely hard days. Um, Today, I must have spilled three things on myself just in a couple hours, um, moving them around and carrying my drink with me. But um, overall, it's magical seeing the world through a child's eyes Mm. again, because it's it's like when you were a kid, you can see the same kind of magic of like everything was simple. Everything was innocent. Everything was curiosity and not fear based like so many often at times adults are anxiety or fear-based and there wasn't that it was just like this big wild world of I want to know all the things and tell me all the things and why is this happening and why is the sky blue and why is the grass green why do we name things blue and green and why are colors color you know like all of all of the deep existential conversations we have right at bedtime so they don't have to go to bed so (laughs) um (laughs) I'm sure most parents can relate to that too but yeah it's really magical and I'm I'm at the point now where I have my kids are six to 15 and COVID was horrible. Overall, the reaction to COVID was horrible, but we really bonded as a family. And that's when we started homeschooling. And now we enjoy each other's company so much that every morning we start out together and every evening we're kind of all hanging out in my room. Um, My husband's there too. And we're talking about whatever latest homeschool thing we're doing or whatever science thing everybody's interested in or whatever social studies thing was. And like, then we all kind of go to bed, but it's, it's just a really beautiful unity amongst us now. And you can't replace that elsewhere. Uh, Absolutely. That's something that on both ends of, of the, the spectrum there that I have been humbled being a, being a father. I remember when my, my daughter was, um, she wasn't born yet. We would just gotten to the hospital. Um, my, my wife was induced and we had to watch all these like hospital videos. And one of them, it was called like purple baby, something like that. And essentially it was, uh, a, a don't shake your baby type of video. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it was, I think it was purple scream. Maybe it, anyways, it, it was essentially saying that a baby is so upset that they turn purple and you're upset. So then you're likely to shake the baby. And I remember watching it. I was like, uh, of course I've heard of shaking baby syndrome. And, um, it's like, I, I wasn't naive to the fact that, um, being a parent could be hard, but I was like, of course, I'm not going to shake my baby. I don't need to watch this. And I was humbled in the fact, not, not that I shook my baby later, but my daughter was, she was an awful sleeper. Um, just Mm -hmm. really, really bad when she was little. And I remember there, there was a time and I'll kind of bring my, my, faith in here too that i even prayed about it of like god like thank you for one giving that video to me and for for humbling me and this fact i didn't ever have a desire to shake my baby but i understood it in those moments mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you sleep like an hour and mm-hmm. this baby's screaming you try every technique to get her to go to sleep it's like i get it now that 
that's still wrong. Now, you mm-hmm. absolutely mm-hmm. shouldn't shake your baby. But that did give us some skills that was like, hey, put the baby in the crib, go walk away. Mm-hmm. They're not going to mm-hmm. die in the next five minutes if you just walk right. away. And that was on that that you know more realistic negative view that I understood. Yeah, there's really hard moments, but like you're saying on the great moments. Um, now my daughter is she's almost four and she runs up and hugs me says i love you daddy you can't you can't replicate that mm-hmm. i don't care how much money you throw at me i wouldn't take any of that over being told i love you from from my mm-hmm. kids and mm-hmm. like you're saying that balance there you need to have both of those um that it can be tough but man can it be wonderful and yeah i think overall our culture doesn't do a great job on on either of those well, when you think about it, it's relationship and marriage has really beautiful parts and really, really tough parts. Best mm-hmm. friendships, really, really tough parts and really, really beautiful parts. And I don't know why we look at children as if they're supposed to somehow be better behaved than adults. But we <laughs> do look at them as like, you're supposed to always behave and do what I say and obey me and never be an issue when we allow other adults to inconvenience us. So that whole kind of philosophy really shifted my parenting about 10 years ago when I realized like, why am I expecting my kids to behave better than I expect the adults in my life? I expect the adults in my life to have bad days or bad attitudes every once in a while or whatever meltdowns adults have. And I'm looking at my kids going, you're not allowed to inconvenience me. No, I want you to Mm -hmm. inconvenience me. That's what relationship is, is inconvenience. It's inconvenience for intimacy. And I would much rather have that then go through life never being inconvenienced, but never having a true relationship. And something you had said earlier, I just made a connection. So this is, I have no scientific backing for this, no research. It may be out there. I haven't even looked at it, (laughs) but I was thinking when you were talking about having your first child and how like the anxieties you have about what could go wrong. And um, we tend to like helicopter parent the first kid mm-hmm. and the second kid, we're a little more relaxed and laid back. And by the fourth kid, we're like, oh, sorry, no baby book. This didn't happen. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking about like birth order and the types of personalities we see in birth order. And it seems to me that those must be connected mm-hmm. as far as my my first child is not very, I mean, she has some anxiety, but she's very, I want to know the boundaries. I want to know the balance. I want to know what's safe. And my second child is wild, um, free spirit, hold on, knees before God, praying, just holding on <laughs> with that kid. And he's fantastic, but wow, he has a lot. He's going to be a leader. And mm-hmm. then my third child is his own little person and plays well independently and just loves to cuddle when on his terms, but he's just happy little guy. And then my youngest is a drama queen and they're all very different. But when I think about where we were at, in those pregnancies or in the parenting of them, like our youngest being the drama queen, she was so prayed for and so wanted, not that all Mm -hmm. of them weren't, but it was a dip. We were going into, we were doing a VBAC at home after two C-sections in the hospital. So it was entirely different birth experience. I had a lot of birth trauma to work through. I had two losses. um, I was dealing with at that time emotionally and mentally. And so, and I really wanted another girl. I had a girl, boy, boy, and I really wanted another girl. And we didn't know, we waited till she was born. And after she was born, that child was doted on by all the other five members of our family. So until she was about five, pretty much had to do nothing for herself. So that's how she became a drama queen. It's all on us. It's all our fault. And I take full responsibility for that. 
But I'm wondering if we did a better job of, like we do premarital counseling, why aren't we doing pre-birth counseling Hmm. with the whole family? And how do you want to transition? And how do you want to work this out? And how do the kids need to still have time with you and you still have time with each other? Why isn't that a normal part of mental health? It's a great question. It really is. And that's something as you're kind of walking through that, I'm just thinking in my own little family period here that um, when my when my son was born, um, my daughter was almost two. So we tried to explain some stuff to her, but she she just didn't really understand. She she wasn't two yet. Um, so this go around now, my son, he just turned two. Um, so same type of thing. We, we've explained a little bit. He knows what babies are, but he's just going to have to learn. Uh, that's, that's just going to be mm-hmm. confusing. But my daughter. I have a hack for a, you, though. Oh, go. Yeah, go, go for that. So what we did with each child that was born previously, when the next one was coming, we got a little kid's tool belt, like a little two-year-old tool belt and embroidered their name on it and stuffed it with diapers and wipes and passies. And they were mommy's helper. And then they (laughs) felt super included and super needed and seen and loved. And they knew how to interact. They knew what to do. There wasn't fear around like, what do I need to do? Like mom's changing the bed. I just need to hand her a diaper. So it was just a, and then we also had baby give the other kids a gift, something very small. Mm-hmm. You don't have to spend a, t- a dollar tree. Is ha- Most kids are fine with that. And we gave something to, we had each of the kids pick out something for the baby. And that way they felt already connected in some way. Um, and so that was just a really nice transition for our real little ones when the next little one was coming around, that they already had a place and a role with that child and in relationship with that child. I, I really like that. Um, we, we, we did with my daughter and we're doing this with, uh, so we're having, we're having another son, um, uh, with this, uh, new son that's about to be born. Um, we, yeah, we have little gifts, like little, uh, stuffed animals or whatever, um, to, to try to make them feel a part of that. But I love that, that little, that little tool belt there of really prepping them and having them be, be a part of that. Um, because I can see that with my, with my two year old, he's just a sweet hugging little, little dude. Um, Mm -hmm. and he's, he's used to being the baby and and he's not, um, Mm -hmm. he's not going to get that same type of alone time with, with the both of us and everything. So I definitely think him being involved in that process, uh, that, that is a wonderful idea because my three-year-old, almost four-year-old, she's all, she's all into it. She loves, she Mm -hmm. looks at the ultrasound pictures. Um, she's like, let's get this baby. And she's mother hen already. Um, two-year-old just doesn't quite understand that. So I, I think that that's, that's a great idea to, to get him involved that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One other thing we do, and this is kind of giving your listeners an example of what therapy looks like. When I work with my clients pre-birth, we talk birth plans, multiple different birth plans. We do the ideal, which isn't going to happen, but along those lines. And then we do the we need to compromise. Some things aren't going to go your way. And then we do the emergency worst case scenario birth plans. But then we do postpartum planning as well, the fourth trimester, three months after. And one of the things we talk about is having stations around the house for mom and baby, like snacks for mom, all the pumping stuff for mom and a couple different stations throughout the house. And then also getting like a rolling cart for the kids to have activities at each place. So mom doesn't have to get up 
every five seconds to get something for the other kiddos. They've got stations and of things they like to do, crafts or books or stuffed animals or whatever. And then we do the same with snacks. We have a snack cabinet that the kids are allowed to go into anytime they want. It's pretty healthy. And then we have a pullout drawer in our refrigerator. They don't have to ask, they can go get. And that all made my last postpartum much easier than my other ones because we had pre-planned for what is this going to look like when I'm home and my hubby's at work and I've got four kids. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I think really what we're getting at here is just that it's just that prep work and it, mm-hmm. it makes sense. And we do it in everything else in our life. You know, when, when we paint, I painted the bathroom not too long ago. Um, you, you get all the, the, the tape out and uh, make sure that all your materials are all set up good to go. That prep work makes the actual painting way, way easier if you do that, do that correctly. So we, we instinctually do these things all the time, but you're right. It tends to be in birth. Okay, <laughs> go, go figure it out. And that's, right. that's a new human being. So we, we should yeah. do a little bit more prep work. Yeah, we'll have meal trains and registries, which are fantastic and lovely. And don't stop doing those. In fact, do them for months after you think the family needs them. But um, there's also it's not just the things, it's the relationship that we need to prep for. And how in yeah. the house are we going to maintain relationship? And um, something new we started this year with our kids was, since I'm now working full-time and my husband working full-time and we're homeschooling, um, we're pr- like people going everywhere all the time. We each take four hours once a month, which each child alone. So one week, mm-hmm. one weekend day, every Saturday or Sunday, I'll take one kid for four hours and then he'll take one kid for four hours. And so each kid gets dedicated four hours a month, which seems ridiculously small when I think about how many hours are in a month. But the reality is that's where we're at. That's where we've got right now. Hopefully we'll extend it more, but they are so much more at peace about I'm going to get mom's ear or dad's ear dedicated to me. And I know it's coming on that day and I can wait till that day, or I can tell her ahead of time this, I need to talk about these things. They can talk to us any day, but that's a guaranteed I'm taking you out of the house with me without the other kids. And you've got me all to yourself. And that has really helped as well. Maintain those relationships and help them feel like they aren't lost in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. Because naturally, if you don't go out of your way, um, especially in a situation like our family, we're, we're about to have this baby and that baby's going to gonna cry, need to be changed. Like, it takes precedent over the here and now, takes precedent over when my two-year-old's hungry or when he's thirsty. And that that's obviously going to cause problems if we mm-hmm. don't come up with ways to be able to tend to everybody's needs and acclimate that, yeah, now there's this crying little baby in here, but that's your brother. And, and we love this brother. You just triggered something else I wanted to talk about again for me when you were talking about the crying baby. One difference between men and women, and it's what research suggests. So, and I'm not and researcher in this area, but this is what I've read repeatedly in research, is in the pituitary gland, women have a kind of alert signal that men don't have to their own baby's cry. Not to necessarily mm-hmm. any baby's cry, but their own, that it's like a pain response. It sends out the hormones that cause a pain response. And um, I'm pretty sure God created that way for the survival of the species because, you know, middle of the night, I'm exhausted. But man, I hear my baby cry and I'm hurting and I'm going to get up and go, um, But it's just one interesting way of like when we're prepping for having a child, 
no matter how, no matter where anybody's at politically or philosophically, whether they're um, liberal feminist or conservative or libertarian or whatever they might be, you can't get around biology. And so like mother's biology is tuned to the first three months being the survival of the child. And that's one thing our society also isn't doing well is how do we support the three months after. And I'm not a fan of like government forcing business to do anything. Um, I have a small business and I understand lots of small businesses can't afford to give somebody three months paid leave. Um, I have lots of out of the box ideas of how we can make that happen without hurting anyone. But um, we just don't do that really well of recognizing the mom's biology is built for the survival of the Mm -hmm. child. And also that child has only ever known the mom as an environment. And so mom's heartbeat, mom's um, smell, mom's sound, that's the child's norm. Dad's voice too, but mom's body is baby's environment. So, and when you think about things like adoption or when kids get removed by the Department of Children's Services as newborns, there's this, can be this trauma or this primal wound that comes from that. And so we just don't really do a good job as society looking at women's biology and what all it's designed for. We, we look at how sex happens and we look at how pregnancy, you know, like how a baby develops in utero and we look at birth, but we don't really talk about then after what a woman's biology is made for. Anecdotally and my, with my children, 1000% that is the case of I could be sleeping and and at times it will annoy my wife afterwards. And granted, I tell her, like, if you need me, just wake me up. But baby stirs a little bit and she's, bam, she's there. And mm-hmm. I hear nothing, I, nothing mm-hmm. at all. Um, and mm-hmm. I just go on about my day and uh, maybe the baby's crying a little bit. I'm like, eh, probably, probably hungry. No big deal. But my wife, yeah, she is. She's right there. And mm-hmm. like you said, that that's that biology. And what a... You mentioned this. What a wonderful thing that women's bodies are designed that way. That that keeps that keeps our baby safe. Um, mm-hmm. That that's fantastic. And yeah, as a society, um, that is we're, we've got the lines blurred so much. And this goes mm-hmm. into some more of the the transgender type of talk too. That men and women are basically just the same thing. So biology doesn't really matter it's just kind of what you identify as or whatever so those signals eh, yeah they're, they're not that important that's that's just not true um that mm-hmm. is absolutely a big deal and i'll tell you my body can't do half the things that my wife's body can do and that is awesome like we should be mm-hmm. celebrating that fact not not downgrading it well yeah i my husband and I have a really wonderful appreciation for the differences in our bodies. We're not just like meat sacks where you can just swap parts. It doesn't really work like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Even if we can do surgeries to try to appear as the other gender, the internal biology isn't going to work. And this is whenever I hear these stories about like, oh, we're going to end up, we have had successful uterine transplants from woman to woman. And we've had a couple babies born that way, but there's no way it would work from a woman to a male body, because it's not just the uterus. It's all the other connections between how 
the immune system is this delicate, beautiful dance during pregnancy that you cannot duplicate just by putting a uterus in your body. And then mm -hmm. the pituitary gland and all the hormone releases is this cascade throughout pregnancy and throughout birth. And like, you can't duplicate that just by putting a uterus in your body. So it, it really, we appreciate each other's natural biological gifts in such a beautiful way that we don't have resentment around that. So like he's naturally taller. I'm pretty short anyway, but he's taller and naturally stronger and naturally can eat a hundred, a thousand more calories than me a day and not gain weight, which is really irritating. I won't lie. That one's irritating, but that's his natural. And I love him for all the things he can do that I can't do. And then he looks at our kids and was like, I could never have cooked these little ones and then nursed them for three or four years each. And he's not relational like I am. And it is a stereotype, but it's also true biologically in our brains. Women are more relational and nurturing and men are more hunter gather um, adventurer. And so he's like, um, he's all about the adventure part of dad. Like he's got that down. He is like <laughs> Disney dad with all of the adventure and fun things that he does with the kids. And, um, but when they're crying, it's mom that they mm -hmm. go to first. Not that they never go to him. Da my youngest today wanted to sit next to daddy, not mommy, which is totally fine. But um, yeah, it's just a natural built in part of our biology. And it's beautiful, like you said. Yeah, well, and, and that kind of leads me into this other discussion discussion point that really what drew me to um you on twitter in the first place i don't remember what i what i first saw from you but it's a constant thing and, and you have all sorts of uh people that say some some pretty nasty things to you on uh, on twitter um uh, but one of the things that you talk often about is that women's biology is not it's not bad like mm -hmm. women's body being able to have a baby that is not a bad thing that that's a beautiful mm -hmm. thing that's the way that mm -hmm. we're created um so speak a little bit more into that of that biology particularly as it relates into the abortion debate and everything of why woman a woman's body being functioned that way why is that so important in that discussion man we would need like 20 hours for me to go all the way through that but i will give my best like two three minute snippet of okay. that yeah, I do get lots of nasty feedback because I talk about really hot button issues and I don't I like I don't love confrontation in that like, ooh, I can't wait to fight, but I don't dislike confrontation. So I don't get like worked up by and I tend to ignore the people that aren't there for genuine conversation anyway. But um so I had an abortion in my 20s and it took 19 years for me to, to even acknowledge that's what had happened. I had done all kinds of denial and cognitive dissonance and all kinds of things to cover that up. And my story is a little bit different in that I didn't go in choosing an abortion. I went in for another reason and was sold an abortion with a lot of cohesion mm -hmm. and deceptive wording so that I didn't even really kind of know what was about to happen to me. There was definitely no informed consent given. Um, and that's not uncommon, unfortunately, that there was an informed consent, but that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but when I first started actually dealing with what had happened to me, I first started noticing after the, the day after my oldest living daughter was born, I was weeping out of fear that I wasn't safe for her. And I didn't, I couldn't quite figure out why I didn't feel safe with her. Like I would have killed dragons for her. I, I couldn't figure out why I didn't. And then it took a while to figure out, oh, instinctively, 
my very genetics and biology has had a trauma of mm. being forced to end a very natural biological process in an unnatural way. And now my body doesn't feel safe to me. And then after we had our miscarriage, same, it just, I felt like, man, my body is just, and some women can't ever successfully carry a pregnancy after abortion because their body is damaged in such a way that they can't. And so when I think I don't want, without looking at anything religion, without even necessarily looking at, I guess I do lean quite a bit on science regarding biology, but when I think of philosophically, and I have a philosophy degree, but when I think about it philosophically, when we offer abortion as the answer to a crisis situation, what we're saying is your body is the problem and your mm -hmm. offspring is the problem. So we need to deconstruct your biology and we need to take away your offspring and then your life will mm -hmm. be better. But the reality, number one, that's extremely misogynistic and pretty ageist against children as well um, and discriminatory all around. But two, it doesn't actually solve most of the reasons women are in crisis. So dismantling her biology isn't going to make an abusive partner stop abusing her. Still going to do that. You haven't changed him at all. Um, getting rid of the child isn't going to suddenly bring a windfall of cash. Poverty is still going to be poverty. So it doesn't, we're not solving any of the actual issues that abortion has been touted as the answer for. Instead, we just continually blame women's biology and our offspring for these crises. And what I see happening is now when we try to get any kind of protections for a postpartum, like maternity or paternity, and I'm, again, I'm not saying government driven, I'm saying society and community driven, where like, let's give leave or let's do, um, PTO swaps or donating time from coworkers or whatever. Let's let's figure this out where we can do floating shifts and stuff like that to make it possible. Um, we we're so quick to be like, yeah, but you could just like if you can't afford a baby, just have an abortion. And again, your body's the problem, not society. Society, we need workers, we need producers, not a producers of children, producers of goods and services. And so yeah, you just need to get rid of that part of your biology because that's a problem. And it's and it's interesting, and I'm not a super feminist, but we don't do that to male biology. We don't say, you know what, your sperm is the problem. Now, men do get vasectomies, and all like if you have foreign consent, you want to do that, all for that, you you do you. But we don't give that as like a, well, really, it's your sperm that's the issue and so we need to get a, do away with that and so when, when i think about we're just now in our society starting to include like breastfeeding rooms in public places mm -hmm. and um changing tables in all the restrooms um not just women's restrooms but for dads too we're just starting to creep into like acknowledgement that women's biology and children exist outside of commercialism. Yeah. I, that, that is, that's such an important discussion that our bodies, and I, I'll, I'll take this into the, into the faith side that 
I believe our bodies were designed by God for a specific reason, um, by a specific creator. It's it's just mockery to to his design of kind of how we how we treat each other's bodies, um, mm-hmm. and I that's again just part of what really drawed me uh, drew me to a lot of your post is just that that openness, um, goodness, like to just flat out say yeah I've had an abortion on and on Twitter that's just asking for all sorts of. <laughs> feedback yes, from, from different people <laughs> and and I, and I love that you're you know yourself and you know hey I'm able to take this and the people that yeah I I'm a I'm a big fan of a of a heavy block button or mute button if people are just being hateful like who cares just go, go ahead and do that but the people that are legitimately want to have a conversation who knows who knows the type of impact that you could have there um and really driving that discussion back into our bodies are not the problem. The way that they're designed, that is not the issue. Um, they are designed well. Um, and I'll, I'll go to, again, on especially that topic on women's biology. Um, yeah, there's some stuff with men, but it, even it, even when we get into transgender stuff, kind of back into that discussion, my spaces, by and large, aren't impacted that much. Mm-hmm. Um there, there are some cases here and there, but women's spaces are absolutely impacted massively, and it's it's just such a shame shame that this is being covered in more of a feminist type of lingo and more of a left leaning type of lingo that this is progress. No, no, it's not. To no, it's that whole topic. So I have so much love in my heart for people who truly have gender dysphoria. It is painful, painful. And what they need though, is not the politicization of it and not the, you know what, we can cure a mental health issue with surgery. No, we can't. We've never been able to cure mental health issues with surgery. Every time we've tried in the history of psychology, it's gone drastically wrong. So we have to treat it with relationship. That's the only way we treat mental health issues. And so I feel for people who are transgender and that this is harming them. And then I feel for women who, like myself, I've been, like I said, I have sexual assault history where if no offense to any man at all, but if I'm in a bathroom or a locker room or anywhere where I'm expecting to be able to be vulnerable physically and a man shows up, I'm instantly on high alert and Mm -hmm. that's uncomfortable for both of us. That's, and, and so what's really shocking to me about that whole movement, I guess it's not shocking anymore. What was shocking to me in the beginning was when we were saying like, okay, let's have individual spaces for those who are transgender. Let's just have a bathroom for them to use. And no, 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 we want yours. That's where it felt like, okay, this really isn't about what those who have gender dysphoria need to feel accepted and supported by culture. This is about wanting to remove and break down the differences between male and female and like transhumanism is what it's really ultimately about. And honestly, when I look back at the history of abortion, it's about transhumanism as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's all interconnected. I've done a lot of Twitter posts about like, can you 
see the connections between all of these things and all these things in human trafficking and all of these things and birth control. And I'm not um, opposed to birth control as far as it being available with informed consent. I'm fine with that. Um, but I do think inherently birth control says your body's a problem, your biology's mm-hmm. problem, you need to stop your healthy biology. So even that has subtle psychological replications or repercussions of being so flippantly, like I, the FDA just approved the first over-the-counter um, birth control this week. And I'm like, and now, so it's just very flippant, like, yep, your biology is a problem. That's what we need to stop is your healthy biology. And yeah, it's all interconnected in all of it with the design, the idea that we can escape our biology, we can transcend our biology. And I'm like, well, we don't even fully understand our biology. So I'm not sure how you think that's going to be successful, number one. But number two, we're going to hurt a whole lot of people along the way attempting to do this. And I started talking about abortion on Twitter, not even from a pro-life or pro-choice perspective, but just because I know, because I work in this line of work, that I'm not the only one that had trauma related to abortion. And so it was for the other women who were like, I've never, ever seen another woman openly say in public, I had an abortion and it was terrible and I'm deeply wounded. And I had to face the trauma of losing my child, but also the trauma of I did that. And so that's why I originally started talking about it. Um, It wasn't even to try to convince people one way or another. It was to give this woman support. And you said, like, who knows what could happen? I tell you what has happened. And I didn't do it for this reason, but it's been so beautiful. I've had lots of women in my private messages, my DMs, either asking for resources, for help, or I'm considering an abortion and I want to talk to you and ultimately choosing not to have one. And I get to walk with them through that. And if even if they chose one, I would walk with them through that, too. Um, my care for them isn't based on their choice. It's based on them as a human being. And I want them to see themselves that way. And I want them to see their child that way, ultimately. Mm. And so um, I'm with them either way, but I've watched women choose not to have abortions and watch them just seconds after their child's born, they're messaging me, oh my gosh, I can't believe I even thought of it. And then we're dealing with that Mm. trauma of I thought of it. But um, just the joy that instant and not everybody has that instant response and that's a whole nother level of like birth trauma we could talk about at some point of people that don't feel instantly bonded because that is a thing that happens but so far they have and so it's really been almost like a ministry field for me that i didn't think twitter would ever be a ministry field for me but it really is um and so i just try to be faithful when god says i need you to show up here and i need you to be vulnerable and i need you to say all the things that you either are scared to say or don't want to say, or people don't want to hear, I need you to say those things and trust me that I'm going to bring the people to you that need you. And I'm going to give you that mute button for the people that you don't need to hear who still need to hear your message, which is why I don't tend to block. I tend to just mute because then they still have to see me, but I don't have to hear them. And so (laughs) you can get my message all day long. That's fine. Um, So, and I just try to be faithful to that. And it's born some really beautiful offline relationships, um, both with wounded women, wounded men from abortion, but also very liberal women who are really wrestling with this losing their spaces. And as we start talking about that, they're starting to see the connection with that and abortion. And not maybe that they're deciding I'm not going to be pro-choice anymore, but I really need to rethink 
the fact that they're selling that as a liberation for me? Why are they telling mm-hmm. me my body needs, to, I need to be liberated from my body? That doesn't seem very pro-woman to me. And so I've just had such beautiful connections with people and they may never, my goal isn't to make somebody pro-life. It's just to have the real honest conversations and the genuine love from human to human that wherever you land, we're worth the conversation and we're worth the respect while we have it. So it's just been beautiful overall. Uh, Absolutely. And and you you mentioned the the key word there is, is vulnerable. And I know not everyone listening to this is going to go and, and, treat uh, or tweet different things about abortion or reproduction or what, whatever it may be that that's fine but mm-hmm. if kind of the whole purpose of this podcast is for me to talk with people and to challenge listeners to do something to to be active and not just be angry be apathetic and at some level if you're going to engage you, you have to be vulnerable it doesn't have to be online um but to make an impact, you have to be vulnerable. You have to accept some people aren't going to like this, and that's okay. But there is another side of that, that there is this beautiful side. None of those interactions would have happened had she not said anything. Right. Um, and I don't think being vulnerable online is a good idea if you haven't worked through your own trauma, if you have trauma. Yes. You're going to get severely wounded. People will say the most hurtful things. And it's not like I'm a robot. Uh, when I do see those things, it, they do hurt, but I just am able to now quickly turn it into a quick prayer for them and move on. Um, but yeah. if you're not worked through your trauma, that could really set you into a bad place. So I wouldn't encourage that. But what I do a lot of work with my patients is when I do we conflict resolution, the fastest way to end a fight is vulnerability. Mm. And it can be something as simple as I'm really scared or I'm really uncomfortable having this conversation. And so I need to just slow down and I need us to bring the level down a bit. And um, I want to hear you and I want to understand you. So vulnerability and understanding. I really want to understand you. Even if I disagree with you, that's okay. I just want to understand you correctly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that, that, that's a great point. And sometimes that starting point is being vulnerable to help myself and, and just be able to, mm-hmm. to get on that road. Yeah. that mm-hmm. with Our paths aren't all going to be the same. They'll, they'll be different. Well, mm-hmm. Robin, I, I think that we could probably talk another three more hours uh, about, mm-hmm. <laughs> about this conversation. Um, really, really enjoyed it. I think this is such an important piece and hopefully some of the listeners will, um, kind of understand that this is a big gap here and maybe get treatment for themselves or kind of av- advocate uh, for treatment elsewhere. For people that are listening, how can they um, be in contact with you after the show? That's a really good question. So if you want to follow all my shenanigans on Twitter, my handle is at Truth Agape. Um, and then if you want to kind of see what my work is, I have a website. Now, when I was thinking of my business name, I love my business name, but it does not make for a great website or email name. So I can spell it if needed, but it's www.carisatveritasllc.com. And so how you spell that is C-H-A-R-I-S, which is Caris at E-T, Veritas, V-E-R-I-T-A-S, LLC.com. It means grace and truth in um, Greek and Latin. And um, 
those are the two things I endeavor to bring to every session is grace and truth. So that's why I picked that name. And I do love it, but it doesn't make for a great website or email. Um, and then if they want to email me, they can. My email's on the website um, or they can just Atkins at carisetveritasllc.com and they can email me. I can't, I will say this right now, I can't treat anyone outside my state. I am only licensed state of Indiana, so I can't treat anybody outside my state. And I have a six month waiting list. However, I am more than happy to help someone find someone in their area, or at least part of what I've done on Twitter is here's what you should look for in a therapist. And here's some Mm -hmm. red flags to avoid, Mm -hmm. because right now there's so much, and you know this, there's so much social justice in therapy Mm -hmm. now that it's not really about therapy as much as it's about politics for some people. And so I just talk about here's some red flags to avoid to not end up in a session where you have an activist instead of a therapist sitting across from you. And, and I'll speak on behalf of Robin. I've done this on my in my own private practice, which for those of you that don't know, my private practice is Truth and Grace Counseling. So we have a lot of similarities uh, that, there in the name. Um, but I love I love when somebody's from Pennsylvania or I had somebody in Canada, um, areas that I'm not licensed in, to be able to point them in the right direction. I love it. Um, so Me too. yes don't don't hesitate to to reach out to her especially when it comes to reproductive uh issues like that uh, she she can help point you in the that right direction and gender related issues because i'm part of a couple organizations uh networks across the world where i can quickly mm. throw out a can, does somebody treat in the state and get answers so right. perfect mm-hmm. Great. Well, I'll include all of that down in the show notes um, so you guys can be in contact with her. And Robin, thanks again so much for for coming on today. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. And thank you to everybody that tuned in today. And uh, we will catch you on the next episode. Bye.